0: from MLNL insurance and you're listening to the Michigan Constitution podcast welcome to the Michigan Constitution podcast where the citizens of the mitten state seek the Pleasant Peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives your host Tony Snyder is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice through this podcast you'll better a few fun facts about Welcome back to episode number forty of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. This time, we're going to talk about double jeopardy. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast, will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. It should not surprise you that, much like our United States Constitution, we have protected individuals from double jeopardy within the state of Michigan. Now, before I dive into double jeopardy, let me answer a question I get from a lot of you listeners. Why does our Michigan Constitution encapsulate so many of the exact same provisions we receive under the United States Constitution? And that answer is twofold. First, the United States Constitution governs our federal government. Or maybe said another way, the United States is a contract between the federal government and the citizens of the United States. Whereas the Michigan constitution is an agreement between Michigan's government and the citizens of Michigan. Think of it like this. As an individual, you are both an American and a Michigander or Michiganian. I'm not about to sell uh, that terminology debate. So, you have rights as an American, and that's protected by the United States Constitution, but you also have rights as a citizen of Michigan. And depending upon which layer of government you're dealing with, well, federal government or state government, that's going to depend upon then which constitution you should be reviewing. Okay, so that's part one of my answer. But before I get to part two, here's your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast, will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan constitutional scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8 ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well-served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Part 2 When our Michigan Constitution was first being written back in 1835, then 1850, then 1908, and now with our 1963 Constitution... Not all the assorted amendments of the United States Constitution's Bill of Rights were applicable to the states. It's only been over time that the United States Supreme Court has directed the amendments of the United States Constitution to be applicable against the individual states. Now, I'm not looking to get into a debate about federalism or frankly even teach what federalism is even about. Uh, whether or not the protections guaranteed by the United States Constitution should also apply to the citizens of, of the state of Michigan, because it is what it is. That's what the nine robed overlords of the marble courthouse in Washington, D.C. have said it will be is that, you know, mo- most or practically all of them, realistically, of the United States Constitution amendments one through 10, or really 1 through 27 as the case would be, but they've done them in in piecemeal, they're applicable against the United States, or excuse me, against the state's governments as well. But that directive by the United States Supreme Court wasn't required when Michigan was drafting up its double jeopardy protection. At the time the Michigan Constitution was being written, again, way back in uh, 1835, It was understood only that the right against double jeopardy was protected by the U.S. Constitution at the federal level. Ergo, Michigan wanted to also provide that protection to its citizenry via this article's section. Now, here's a worthless little bit of trivia. It wasn't until 1969 in the case of Benton versus the state of Maryland that the United States Supreme Court made double jeopardy protections via the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment applicable to both the federal and state governments. Okay, so what really is that double jeopardy protection that we're we're discussing here? Well, it's it's a big question that I'm going to go through element by element. Only once we understand what double jeopardy is, can I start to highlight its practicality via our traditional discussion of Michigan case law. Double jeopardy embodies three separate protections. One, it protects against a second prosecution for the same offense after acquittal. Two, it protects against a second prosecution for the same offense after a conviction. And three, it protects against multiple punishments for the same offense. But those three protections are not where most of the litigation against double jeopardy allegations will occur. There is arguably a fourth protection against double jeopardy, and that's the prohibition of a retrial of a defendant after a mistrial occurs. But we'll get into that later. So why, why is this protection against double jeopardy so important, so vital that we have it in both the United States Constitution as well as our own Michigan Constitution? Well, there are several reasons. First, we do it to reduce the chance of convicting innocent people. The theory here maintains if this rule didn't exist, The state of Michigan would be able to retry a defendant until they presented just the right case to convince a jury of the defendant's guilt. Think of it like if you could retake a math test over and over until you aced the exam. You know where you got things wrong, so when you retake your math test, you have the benefit of knowing where your wrong answers were so that you could get those math questions right the next time you test for it. A criminal trial is the same concept. We don't want a county prosecutor to have the ability to try you for a crime, you be found innocent, thus giving the prosecutor a second bite at the apple to try you again and strengthen the case where it may have lacked originally. The second reason that we find the double jeopardy clause to be so important is to avoid harassing the defendant. Now, criminal trials are expensive to defend, are stressful on the defendant and his or her family, and no prosecutor should be allowed to repeatedly try the defendant for an alleged crime. And lastly, we as a society want to ensure the certainty and finality of criminal litigation. When we have a guilty or not guilty verdict, whichever the outcome may be, the defendant should have the luxury of moving forward with their life, whether it is as a free person thanks to a not guilty verdict or in jail or prison because they were found guilty. Regardless of the jury decision, the defendant should know their criminal case is done and over with. So when does jeopardy kick in such that double jeopardy is subsequently blocked? Well, I'm sorry to say this listeners, but my answer is it depends. For example, Jeopardy attaches to a criminal defendant's case when a jury has been officially chosen and sworn in, also known as impaneled. But if it's a bench trial, meaning that the judge actually gets to act as both the judge and the jury for determining guilt or innocence, then Jeopardy attaches when the first witness is sworn in and takes the stand. But here's one more you may not have considered, and that's when the defendant forgoes a trial and enters a guilty plea. If the court accepts the defendant's guilty plea to a crime, then boom, Jeopardy is now applicable. But what about those pesky mistrials? We hear about them in the news, and sometimes the defendant can be retried, but sometimes the defendant cannot be retried. How do we determine whether Jeopardy applies? You're not going to like my answer because there's no real hard and fast rule that one can really point to. We have to discuss conceptual ideas here. Was there something called manifest necessity this occurs this manifest necessity idea it occurs when you get a hung jury or a judge has to recuse him or herself from the case another example where manifest necessity is a it could be a mistrial or or, or would cause a mistrial would occur is if the uh, juror has to leave the jury midway through the trial for some reason these are all reasons why a mistrial can be issued and a defendant indeed can be retried Also, a mistrial can be called and a defendant retried if the defendant does something which causes that mistrial. This could be, for example, uh, inappropriate action by the defendant, perhaps talking to a juror, or if the defendant is out on bail and just never comes back to the trial after a lunch break or at the end of that particular day's trial session. Also, if the defendant's lawyer in some way causes a mistrial by the defense attorney's inappropriate behavior, like maybe mentioning something which was otherwise prohibited to be brought up at trial. Similarly, if the defendant himself asks for a mistrial for some reason, in the event that the judge should grant that mistrial request, then the defendant will be subject to retrial. However, and this is important, if the Prosecutor engages in some sort of improper behavior, the defendant may ask the judge for a mistrial. And if the judge grants that request, jeopardy has attached and the defendant cannot be retried. You know where we've most recently heard about this happening? The Kyle Rittenhouse case. Now, very, very briefly, during the Rittenhouse case, the prosecutor had been forbidden to discuss certain comments that Kyle Rittenhouse had made prior to the night of the shootings in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The defense attorneys objected to the statements made by the prosecutor because the judge had previously determined certain comments made by Mr. Rittenhouse were not relevant to the criminal case. As such, when the prosecutor brought up such comments in front of the jury, the defense believed the prosecutor engaged in improper, specifically bringing up comments where the judge had forbidden things to be brought up, and that this tainted the jury pool. The idea that if the jury heard these irrelevant comments, it could sway them against the defendant, thus not making for a fair trial. When the defense attorney objected to the prosecutor's comments, they asked the judge for a mistrial. If the judge would have granted the mistrial, Jeopardy would have attached. And the defendant would not have been allowed to be retried on those charges. But as it happened, the judge did not rule on the objection. The judge waited to see how the jury would rule. And since the jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty, then no decision on a mistrial was necessary. But I share that with you because I want to lay the the foundation. I'm going to circle back to this Kyle Rittenhouse matter uh, and 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 prosecutor misconduct later. I just wanted to start uh, the the wheels turning for you, listeners. Okay. Let's get into finally, right, the first case that we're going to discuss on Double Jeopardy. It is People versus Anderson, and it is a 1980 Michigan Supreme Court case. Frankly, this opinion reads like a law school textbook, the way the justices wrote the step-by-step analysis of when and how to consider a double jeopardy claim. But first, let's talk about this crazy fact pattern that got us even to have the opportunity to review this Article 1, Section 15, double jeopardy claim. The defendant is a woman by the name of Elva Jean Anderson. She was charged with first-degree murder of Willie Ray Russell. Apparently, one night, victim, Willie Ray, took a woman by the name of Barbara Golden to to a particular hotel. The victim and Ms. Golden were told by the hotel doorman that this hotel didn't want any trouble and that they should leave the hotel immediately. So, clearly, the doorman knew who Willie Ray Russell was and who Barbara Golden were. At least that's what you can imply from the court's opinion and the fact pattern provided. So, as requested, they both did leave. Indeed, victim Russell left the hotel while Ms. Golden made a phone call and waited with the doorman at the hotel. Now, about 20 minutes later, a taxi cab pulls up, and our defendant, Elva Jean Anderson, she exits out of the cab. Defendant Anderson approaches Ms. Golden and promptly slaps her across the face, and they go around the side of the hotel building. A few minutes later, the doorman sees Defendant Anderson walk up to the car that Willie Ray Russell was sitting in. She pulls a shotgun out of the front of her pants and shoots Mr. Russell dead. The doorman testified he heard Defendant Anderson say to Russell's dead body, "Mother, I bet you won't try to rape nobody else. Okay, time out. There's more to this fact pattern, but I can't get to it just yet. I need to tell you that Ms. Anderson gets arrested for first-degree murder and goes to trial on that criminal charge. During her trial, the prosecutor calls five out of its eight witnesses. During an off-the-record sidebar conversation, apparently the judge tells the prosecutor the proof presented of first-degree murder was not strong and offers the defendant, again, this is the judge doing this, offers the defendant an opportunity to plead guilty to manslaughter. After a brief discussion between the defense attorney and defendant Anderson, she takes the offer to plead guilty to manslaughter and enters the following information of the crime into the record. And this is the rest of that story, so to speak, listeners. Defendant Anderson told the judge that she and Ms. Barbara Golden were lesbian lovers and that the phone call Ms. Golden had made at the hotel was to defendant Anderson saying Mr. Russell was waiting outside the hotel with a gun and was trying to rape her. Ms. Golden had called defendant Anderson to come pick her up and protect her from the impending rape. Defendant Anderson acknowledged she brought the shotgun with her because she believed Ms. Golden was indeed in danger of being raped. Defendant Anderson said that she approached the car in which Mr. Russell was sitting because she believed that he had attempted and was still going to attempt to rape Ms. Golden. As such, Defendant Anderson said that uh, she asked Russell to get out of the car because, quote, I didn't want to shoot him, end quote. And apparently she had repeated this request several times. Ms. Anderson thought that victim Russell was digging for a gun and when he didn't come out of the car, she shot him now i have to be very clear here the prosecutor objected every step of the way to what was happening he objected to the judge refusing to let the rest of his witnesses testify cuz you'll remember only 5 out of the 8 had testified by the time this offer was was made by the judge the prosecutor also objected to the judge ending the trial without it going to a jury to determine guilt or innocence And the prosecutor vehemently objected to the judge offering Defendant Anderson a much lower criminal charge of manslaughter. So, the prosecutor appeals the judge's decision, but Defendant Anderson's argument to the Michigan Supreme Court was this. She was acquitted by the judge of first-degree murder, and she pled guilty to manslaughter. As such, double jeopardy applies to her first-degree charge, and no court can overturn the judge's acquittal of the first-degree murder. And the Michigan Supreme Court agreed with Ms. Anderson. The prosecutor was denied the right to retry her for the first-degree murder charge because of the judge's actions. Now, if this sends a shiver down your spine, you're in good company. I, too, don't like this outcome. The Michigan Supremes held that the double jeopardy clause would be violated by a retrial of Ms. Anderson because it was the judge who made a factual determination upon the prosecution's proofs that one or more element of first-degree murder could not be established. So how did the Michigan Supreme Court get to this outcome, you ask? Well, let's dig in a little bit more. Our state Supreme Court took about 15 15 United States Supreme Court case decisions from a 25-year time frame and succinctly boiled them down to the following bright-line rules. The constitutional protections of the Double Jeopardy Clause are implicated only when Jeopardy has attached in a criminal trial. Jeopardy attaches in a jury trial when the jury members have been impaneled and sworn in as a jury. Remember, the value of what double jeopardy is, number one, it gives us both the public in general and the defendant specifically, the knowledge that an outcome, whether it's guilt or innocence, that that judgment is final, final verdict. That's that's one of the main, most important reasons that we value double jeopardy. But number two, it protects the defendant against multiple prosecutions. If a trial ends in a judgment of acquittal or maybe said in layman's terms, not guilty, Then there never can be a retrial. This is considered to be the most fundamental rule in the history of double jeopardy understanding. And what's great is it's absolute. When a not guilty verdict is returned by the jury, it's truly game over on that criminal matter against the defendant. But here's the kicker it applies whether the not guilty decision is based on findings of a judge or a jury. And it's absolute, even if the not guilty decision was erroneously brought about. So one thing you should know, and although not tangentially related to this case at hand, it's going to come up in our next case. I do want you to know that if a trial does not end in guilty or not guilty, the protection against multiple prosecution is not protected. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's very legal ease and I can make it much more understandable. So think hung juries. Think about how many times we hear on the news about a criminal case which ends in a mistrial because the jury couldn't come to a unanimous decision on guilt or innocence. In those instances, we'll see the prosecutor say that he or she will immediately file a motion to retry the defendant because the prosecutor is positive, the next jury will find the defendant guilty of whatever crime is being charged. And that's allowable, as our next case will explain. But for now, we need to focus in on the judge ending the trial, finding Ms. Anderson innocent of the first-degree murder, and letting her plead guilty to this lesser crime of manslaughter. Now, sidebar, what's the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter, I bet you're wondering? In a single word, deliberate. If the murderer considered the pros and cons of the killing and thought about and chose her action before she did it, regardless of how much time the murderer reflected on this choice, then it's first-degree murder. There's a deliberate action there. But for you and me, what do we really care about as it relates to the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter? Ah, The answer is prison time, right? See, with a first-degree murder conviction, the defendant faces a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Whereas with manslaughter, the most prison time the defendant will receive is up to 15 years. Now you can see why defendant Anderson was so quick to plead guilty to manslaughter. She didn't dispute that she killed the victim, but it was her motivation as to why she did it. Her belief that he was reaching for a gun and her belief that she was protecting herself and potentially even the impending rape of Ms. Golden. If she were convicted of first degree murder, she was looking at the real possibility of dying in prison. With this manslaughter offer, she knew the most time possible that she could be sentenced to would be no more than 15 years. So let's focus back on the judge's action that day in court. Our Michigan Supreme Court held that when reviewing the trial judge's action, the Supremes must determine whether the ruling of this judge actually represents a resolution, whether it's a correct resolution or not, on the elements of the criminal charge. They noted a retrial was impermissible when the judge evaluated the government's evidence and determined that it was legally insufficient to sustain a conviction the Michigan Supremes concluded the judge's decision to accept defendant Anderson's mid-trial plea and to dismiss the murder charge did indeed resolve the factual elements of the offense being charged against her. And this is important to note. The Michigan Supreme Court went so far as to even say the judge's decision was based on, quote, his belief, correct or incorrect, prematurely formed or not, that the evidence was insufficient to support a conviction of murder, end quote, and that that was permissible by the judge. See, the judge determined that Anderson could assert a defensive excuse and that the merits of this defense must be assessed from the standpoint of defendant Anderson's reasonable belief. Based on what the judge had heard at trial, the prosecution had not proved and could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Anderson did not believe the killing was necessary to prevent the rape. All right, all right, that's, that's a lot of double negatives. Let me, let me rephrase it. The judge was not convinced, based on the prosecutor's own witnesses, that Anderson felt any other emotion but the belief Ms. Golden was about to be raped and or Anderson was about to be shot by Mr. Russell. Now, before I close out, I do want to include that the Michigan Supreme Court did slightly chastise the judge for what he did at trial, They said, In the instant case, the judge should have allowed the prosecution to present all of its witnesses. He could have then have entered a motion for a directed verdict. However, a procedural error, even of this magnitude does not change the finality of an acquittal any more than would an erroneous determination on the elements of the crime charged. By the way, that last statement that an acquittal would be upheld even if the judge erroneously determined the elements of a criminal trial... We'll get some attention in an upcoming podcast. As I previously stated, this is a great textbook example of how and why Double Jeopardy is there to provide protections for a defendant under our Michigan Constitution. But I also point out this case so that you can appreciate the level of power a judge has in determining the outcome of a criminal case. Trial court judge election races are at the bottom of your ballot, but they're just as important in your day-to-day life as is the race for, say, mayor or governor or president of the United States that you always want to go out and vote for because you think those are so important. But as you can see, voting for trial judges is almost more important because that's going to impact your day-to-day life. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to give me some feedback, please do so. I am at Tony Snyder on Twitter. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.